Today's reading is taken from Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they travelled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptised? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptised him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and travelled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. On Sunday mornings, we're looking at the Acts of the Apostles, seeing how the Christian faith spread from Jerusalem to Rome, embracing people of all religions, race and rank in life. And today we're looking at Philip's encounter with this Ethiopian official, a clear biblical example that black lives matter to God and so should to us. But what is this guy doing in Jerusalem? This is how Rembrandt depicts the scene. He's clearly Jewish as he's gone to Jerusalem to worship, probably at one of their major festivals. But he's black. This is not how you normally think of Jews, is it? Israeli women are amongst the most beautiful in the world but you don't often think that they look like a beauty who has come from the Horn of Africa, like Miss Israel 2013. We're familiar with Jews praying with a prayer shawl around their heads, but this is not what you would expect to see at the Wailing Wall, and yet it is. Israeli women all serve in the Israeli Defence Force and yes they all have a tan but you don't expect them to be as dark as this do you? If you've got a good memory though or you're old enough 
then you may remember in the early 80s, Operation Moses, and in the early 1990s, Operation Solomon, when approximately 100,000 Ethiopian Jews, or Falashas as they're known as, were airlifted to settle in Israel. But how come they were in Ethiopia in the first place? Well, the Jews came to Ethiopia, or Cush as it's called in the Bible, the Upper Nile, that which is the southern part of Egypt, northern Sudan and northern Ethiopia, in four main waves. First, when Moses was around, around the 13th century BC, and he took his people out of Egypt. And as he was doing that, his son took some of them to Ethiopia. Second was when the non-Jewish queen of Ethiopia in the 10th century travelled to meet Solomon. She converted and had a son by Solomon. In addition to the conversion of her and her people, other Jews followed her as an expanded retinue assigned for her son. When the northern kingdom of Israel in the 7th century BC was destroyed by the Assyrians, a number of them from four of the ten tribes escaped to Ethiopia. And later on, in the Greek period of the 3rd and 2nd centuries before Christ, there were Israeli garrisons in various positions between Ethiopia and Israel. And as they were destroyed by the Greeks, their survivors fled south to Ethiopia. So this guy is one of them. He had, verse 27, come to Jerusalem to worship. Most likely, in fact, he was a convert to Judaism because he is said to be a eunuch and deliberately castrating a man is forbidden in Deuteronomy 23.1. So I don't suppose he came from a Jewish family. He was, we read, the chief finance officer to the Ethiopian queen mother. Candace isn't a personal name, but rather a royal title. She carried out a lot of civic activities on behalf of her son, and somewhere, somehow, this African official of hers must have met Jews and eventually embraced their faith. And as part of that faith, he had gone to Jerusalem to celebrate at the temple. In cultures with female royalty, it was obviously felt necessary for men who worked closely with them to be ones who were incapable of becoming too intimate with them. Since God's intention is for men and women to marry and multiply, to deliberately prevent somebody from such intimacy and reproduction is regarded as being wrong. Now interestingly, just three chapters further on than the one that the Ethiopian eunuch is reading, various different people groups have great hope It's recorded in Isaiah 56, verse 3 to 5. Hope for them to be welcomed into the people of God. The boundaries of the people of God are then being predicted. 
that they will extend beyond the Jews. We read, And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me, and hold fast my covenant. I will give in my house, that's his temple, and within my walls a monument and a name, better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name. They, just like the foreigner, could look forward to being a member of the people of God. And this guy is both an African and a eunuch. And now post-Christ is to be the time of a great influx of diverse peoples from different nationalities, those who are on the margins of their societies too, an influx to be gathered in, to be part of God's expanding people. So let's, that, so that's how he came to be there. But why was he there? Well, he clearly wanted to find God. It may be that he was impressed by the quality of the Jews and their morality compared with those around him. It may be that he was impressed by their monotheism as opposed to the pagan superstition that doubtless surrounded him. But through Judaism, he had heard that God's symbolic dwelling place on earth was in his temple in Jerusalem. So he wants to go and find him. Now the king who built the original temple, Solomon, once wrote, God has put eternity in our hearts. And Augustine, also a North African from what is today Tunisia, observed, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. You know, he has that aching void and he's looking to have it filled. Now, where is he looking? Well, at this particular point in time, he's looking in the Jewish scriptures. He's reading a section from the book of Isaiah, this time from chapter 53. Now, you may say to me, Clive, why should I? Why should I recognise scripture as having any veracity or any authority over me? Well, I'm sure you realise that there are very few options for deciding what is true or false, right or wrong. There is oneself, me. I decide what is right and wrong, true and false. Then there's the collection of other human beings. So it's either the majority, 51%, that decides, or some kind of ruling elite that decides what truth is. One's called democracy and the other's called oligarchy. There's also the possibility that there is no such thing as truth or right, although we might say that, none of us live by that. Or there is some external authority, the creator of the universe. He has the authority and Christians believe that he has communicated to us through the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles of the new. And it is there now recorded for us in the scriptures. Jesus endorses the veracity of the Old Testament and he makes provision for the apostles, the eyewitnesses, to write up the New Testament. 
Jesus, the apostles, and some of the prophets' ability to do miracles in public, which even their archenemies conceded actually happened before their very eyes, was God's way of endorsing both the message and the messenger. In other words, these guys were his authorised spokespersons. But do intelligent people today still buy that? People who are world-renowned in their respective spheres do actually buy this. I want to introduce you to two such people who lend weight to this. The first is Dr. Roger Morey, who died a few years ago. He was the keeper, now called the director of the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford. And I was very fortunate in that when I studied archaeology of the Old Testament, he was my personal tutor. What he didn't know about Western Asiatic antiquities, as they're called, nobody knew. He was an expert in the archaeology and the ancient literature of the Near East. I can remember him saying to me once that no archaeological or literary discovery had ever placed any doubts on the veracity of the Old Testament record. But you may be a scientist, so let me introduce you to another one, Professor Daniel Hastings. Dan is quite literally a rocket scientist, often thought to be amongst the cleverest among the scientific community. He is a professor and head of department of aeronautics, astronautics and systems engineering at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in the United States, although he's originally from Jamaica. MIT, as it's uh, usually referred to, has for the last three years been ranked the top university in the world. He's not only a professor there, he's been the dean the academic in charge of all the undergraduates and all the undergraduate teaching at the university. In his mid-thirties, he was the chief scientist of the United States Air Force. He is on the board of NASA, the US Space Agency. He is one of just 20 directors appointed by the US president, in his case, President Obama, to the National Science Board of America. That's just part of his eight-page CV on his website. It is impressive. No disrespect intended, but I think he's probably a good deal smarter than any of us speaking or listening this morning. So being clever and top-ranking as a world scientist need not be a barrier to recognising that there is a God and adopting Jesus Christ and his worldview. This is what he writes on his personal webpage. I've been a believer in Jesus Christ since I was a teenager. I became a Christian in 1972, basically as a search for meaning in my life. I found Jesus Christ to provide the purpose and meaning for which I was searching. He has led and guided me ever since. In coming to know Jesus Christ, I have acknowledged that I am not capable of running my life on my own and I need him to explicitly give me direction. After becoming a Christian in high school, I went on to study mathematics, engineering and physics. 
I have never found my occupation as a scientist and engineer to be in conflict with my faith. Rather, I see my calling to be in searching out and using the knowledge that God has given us to better the lot of humanity and to serve him on this earth. Notice, I never found my occupation, he says, as a scientist and engineer to be in conflict with my faith. I think if there were an intellectually compelling scientific reason to prevent belief in God, I think he's more than likely to have found it. But he hasn't. In fact, like Roger Morey, he displays a a significant amount of intellectual humility. Maybe we should too. And perhaps we would discover more. Well, back to our Ethiopian. What did the Ethiopian learn? Verse 7, he's reading about someone who was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. Now this was written around 700 BC. Here's a copy of the book of Isaiah. The map shows us where it was found in 1947 at Qumran on the northwestern edge of the Dead Sea home of a sect called the Essenes, who were there between about 150 and about 70 or so AD. They buried it in a jar, in a cave, in one of the driest places on earth, around 100 BC. So Isaiah wasn't made up after Jesus had lived. This was all written and deposited long before Jesus ever pitched up on earth. It is quite remarkable how Isaiah chapter 53 describes the arrest, trial and suffering of Jesus so far in advance. And particularly, it tells us why he suffered. For the transgression of my people he was punished. This substitutionary sacrifice was penal. It means that Jesus, who did no wrong, gave his life so that wrongdoers would not have to face God's justice and be condemned. Because God himself, in the person of Jesus, willingly bore the punishment of exclusion so that human beings whose lifestyle would make them unsuitable for heaven might, in fact, not be excluded. I have a grandfather who paid the ultimate sacrifice and was killed just six weeks before the end of World War I. On his grave, the family chose to have inscribed, he gave his life for others. 
on his son's, my father's grave, we had inscribed something that reflected his life. He lived his life for others. The sacrifice of one enabled the other to live and serve. So with Jesus and so with us. But it's not automatic. The Ethiopian grasped this. A response is required. We need to confess our sins, which muddy our relationship with God. And water baptism is what symbolises just that. Something done to us, making us clean. We read 37... And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptised? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptised him. Incidentally, the mode of baptism depicted here, they both went down into the water implies that whatever they did, they both did. This militates against submersion baptism, both of them going under the water, but it also mitigates against, um, militates against dry affusion, one standing or being held whilst a very modest amount of water is dabbed over their forehead by one for the other. So maybe both Baptists and Pido-Baptists, those who baptise the children of believers, have got this little aspect wrong. Or maybe the symbolism of water, rather than the amount of water, is what's important. It would seem, as all the earliest paintings of baptism suggest, that both went into shallow water, up to around their knees or perhaps uh, mid-thighs, and the water was poured over the eunuch's head by Philip. Now, while Christians might disagree as to how much water is to be used in baptism and when baptism is to be administered, all acknowledge that baptism is a sign for forgiveness of sins. And in baptism, sins and wrongdoings are symbolically washed away. Well, this Ethiopian, high official that he was, was not too proud to submit to that. He was prepared to acknowledge his moral deficiencies. Back to Professor Hastings. I remember hearing from him one Christmas... We'd been students together, the same college, the same landing, the same Christian union, but unfortunately not quite the same intellectual ability. Anyway, shortly after he got uh, married, he wrote to me. In those days, before email, you wrote with pen and very thin paper, and it was flown for you by British Airways or American Airlines, and it took a minimum of two weeks to get a reply. In his letter, Dan wrote, Getting married and living together made me realise just how selfish and sinful I was. 
I wonder whether there's anybody here listening this morning who feels a little intellectual and moral humility and needs, like the Ethiopian, to confess their sins, to ask Christ's forgiveness and to receive eternal life. Or if you've quietly in the last few months as you've had time to reflect and think about life and to realise we're pretty small fry in this massive universe that you have handed over your life to Christ. The way we go public about that if we've never been baptised is through baptism or if we were baptised as a child then the faith in which we're brought up is confirmed publicly for us. We have an opportunity for both those things later in the year. After the baptism, Philip was then taken to witness in the coastal region, first at Azotus, which is Ashdod today, and then further up the coast to Caesarea Maritima, where he pops up 20 years later as a resident, see chapter 21, verse 8. Now, Caesarea Maritima was a city with a large Greek-speaking population. Originally a small harbour town known as Strato's Tower, it was rebuilt by Herod the Great in a magnificent Hellenistic style with a greatly improved harbour of 40 acres big enough for 300 ships. In Philip's day, it was the seat of the Roman government of Judea. Excavations um, have yielded significant finds, including the Herodian port, an amphitheatre shaped like a hippodrome for horse races, which had a half a mile race course, a palace built on a promontory out into the sea, frequently identified as Herod's Palace, and a great raised aqueduct which brought water in from miles around, and a theatre which seated three and a half thousand. And Herod built a temple to Augustus Caesar here, and an inscription found in the theatre mentions Pontius Pilate's dedication of a Tiberium, a sacred site devoted to the emperor Tiberius. Pilate, as you know, was the governor at the time of Jesus' trial and execution. Now the Ethiopian, by contrast, goes on a rejoicing as one radio pundit once said, what I envy about Christians most is forgiveness. I have no one to forgive me. That's the price of disbelief. The burden of a guilty conscience. John Stott observes that the Ethiopian went out without the evangelist, but with the evangel, without human aid, but with the divine spirit. Irenaeus added a few years later to preach what he believed and doubtless he did to both religious Jews and ethnic Africans. For today there are 45 million Ethiopian Orthodox believers, 14 million Protestant believers and half a million Roman Catholic believers in Ethiopia. So we have here 
an example of the Christian faith being adopted by a black African whose journey to faith had come via Judaism to that fuller, completed version of the faith, that is Christianity. It was embraced by someone of high social standing, yet somebody not too proud intellectually or morally to allow such unnecessary barriers to stand in the way of finding and embracing the truth. It's also a reminder that from God's perspective, the colour of a human being's skin or variations in his or her physiognomy, the way in which we look, is irrelevant for three reasons. First of all, it's because we come from the same source. God created man and woman in his image. Adam and Eve are the first representatives of Homo sapiens. And whether we are black, Western Eurasian or Eastern Eurasian, we can be traced back genetically to our most recent common ancestors who are known affectionately as mitochondrial Eve and Y-chromosomal Adam. Second, because we are all much more of a mixture than we ever imagined. Bleddington in Gloucestershire is a quintessentially English Cotswold country village, as English as you can get, or so you think. In the news about three years ago, they had a piece where the village were going to be all subjected to a DNA test to find out what their genetic background was. One woman is reported as saying, I very much doubt if they'll find any foreign blood in me. Then he turned out to be completely unaware of fourth or fifth generation cousins also living in the village. But they were all far more English, far less English rather, than they thought. Less than half of the, their average DNA was Anglo-Saxon. Anglo-Saxons, by the way, were the Germanic immigrants of the 8th century AD. In fact, 43% of their DNA was Anglo-Saxon, 21% Western European, 17% Irish, Welsh or Scottish, 11% Scandinavian, and 8% from 14 other global regions. No one was 100% Anglo-Saxon. They were all a mixture. One village resident who in the picture looked like a real English rose was intrigued to learn that her DNA was in fact 7% Southeast Asian. Speaking about the findings, she said, it's rather exciting to think I have something in common with people in Asia and India and it does make the world feel a smaller place. Now, Bleddington, of course, is deeply rural. If the same research was done in a more urban cosmopolitan setting, the DNA findings would be even more mixed and would doubtless cover a much greater geographical area. You see, as the first human being spread out across the globe and over time evolved diverse features, 
But as the planet has become more a global village, that diversity has been mixed up in the biological melting pot. So in Adam, we are all the same. We come from the same. And in reality, we are all unique mixtures. But thirdly, and supremely, in Christ we all share an equal status as redeemed human beings without being identical. This falasha was just one example of this worldwide reach of the people of God in forming an international community of all races, united and reconciled with their creator and redeemer, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have been wonderfully made by you and you have uh, permitted the evolution of quite a diversity as we spread around the globe. And as we have come together and mixed, we see the fantastic, unique creations that we all are. We pray, Heavenly Father, that whether it's through a doctrine of creation or whether it's through the doctrine of of recreation, salvation, or whether it's just through natural observation, that there is a unity in the human race and supremely in those who have been reunited with yourself, who are at peace with you, at one with you, and acquire this international family of brothers and sisters in Christ. May we recognise that more and more. In your name we pray. Amen.